This is the Yale University Press podcast. I'm Michael Hoke. Most of us, I would assume, for better or worse, consider ourselves part of society, part of a group. But what does that mean? Where do groups come from? Why do they fight? Why do we believe rumors and fake news? Why have we as humans created the society that we have? Joining me today is Pascal Boyer, professor of anthropology and psychology at Washington University in St. Louis and author of his most recent book, Minds Make Societies, How Cognition Explains the World Humans Create. Pascal, thank you for coming on today. Thank you very much for having me. The first thing you talk about in the book is sort of uh, how society is a mystery to us. So why is society such a mystery, even though we're all making it up? Uh, Well, it is a mystery in the sense that if we try to understand uh, why some of the most common features of societies are the way they are, uh, we quickly realize that all the answers we have uh, very often are um, sort of shoot from the hip, ready-made uh, answers that do not explain anything. Like, for example, um, we have this idea that uh, the reason why uh, there is uh, hierarchies, there are hierarchies and there's power in human societies is that people want domination. They want power over other people. Or um, the reason why we have conflict between groups, between ethnic groups, between races, um, is that people are tribal. Um, They have tribalism. They have attachment to their own group, and they tend to to look down on other human groups. Uh, The reason we have sort of gender inequality, for example, is that men want to dominate women. And then if we think about it, we realize that those answers are not really answers at all. They're not explanations. Um, they do not explain anything. They just re-describe um, the, the phenomenon. So one way to escape from that um, is to look at uh, human societies from the point of view of another species. So, for example, if we were uh, chimpanzee anthropologists or gorilla anthropologists, how would we look at human societies? And then if you do that, you realize that um, human institutions, societies, and the human species in general is very strange, and none of the usual answers we have are terribly convincing. So, um, for example, uh, I like to cite the um, uh, possibility of bonobo anthropologists, that is, a species of uh, chimpanzees, who uh, would think that humans are strange because uh, they keep talking about sex, they have songs about sex, they dream about sex, etc., but they don't really do it very often. <laughs> um, that is, compared to a bonobo, they really do it very rarely. Um, and a gorilla anthropologist would be uh, really sort of fascinated by the fact that sometimes people in power um, in human societies are not the physically strongest individual. That would be a, a kind of mystery. Uh, so, if we look at um, human society is this way as um, the product of a species that is very special, uh, then lots of things become mysteries. You know, why do, um, for example, why do fathers have an interest in their children? Uh, that is a very uncommon thing um, among primates for, for fathers to, 
uh, to look after their children so much. Um, why is there so much cooperation in society? That is, why do we are we constantly engaged in sort of collective action, cooperation, and so on and so forth? Um, also, why do we have conflict between groups? Why be attached to your group rather than just defect from your group and join a better one? Um, all those questions become sort of more, uh, they're, they're not really mysterious, but they're uh, puzzles that uh, science could, I think, um, help us solve. And that's what I try to explain in the book. And uh, this idea of cooperation, um, it seems humans are both good and bad at cooperating. Why is there this sort of uh, conflict here? Why are humans good at it and why are they also bad at it? Well, they're good and bad in different contexts for different reasons. Uh, one thing that is very impressive about human beings is that they have uh, coalitions, alliances uh, between individuals much more than any other species. So um, you'll find that um, even in, in species that, that, that have groups where you know, there are groups of um, organisms together, you find much less cooperation than among humans. So from the day we're born to, you know, to the end, we depend on other individuals for providing us with resources, information, support, and so on and so forth. And we're very good at doing that. Um, however, we, uh, the, the, the flip side of this is that we're very good at building coalitions with others in a context in which we think, we assume that coalitions are in competition for resources. And that means that we are both extremely good at living in groups um, and creating those highly cohesive groups. And we're very good at um, uh, producing the intuition that the success of those groups uh, requires that others be less successful, that they, um, it's, a, it's a competition, it's a sort of um, zero sum kind of world. We tend to think like that in terms of uh, relations between groups, and that's because we evolved in a world where that was the case. You know, we competed for territories, uh, we competed for resources, and um, a co very large-scale global cooperation was not something that was available. So our minds are more tuned to um, creating coalitions and groups that are highly cohesive, but very small groups where everyone knows each other, and we are... Um, in competition and possibly conflict with other similar groups out there. And the idea of stereotypes, where, where do stereotypes come from um, and, and what do we do about them? <laughs> uh, well, there's one thing, in uh, one assumption in social sciences uh, that, um, that, that, that is very common, which is that uh, it's wrong to have stereotypes, and stereotypes are always inaccurate, and they're always wrong. Um, it used to be a sort of um, uh, sort of mainstay of uh, social psychology that all our stereotypes are inaccurate and they're wrong, and it's and it's morally wrong to use them because uh, you project onto an individual uh, some characteristics of a group, which on top of that are not always accurate. Um, it turns out, I mean, lots of recent research shows that, well, uh, first of all, you know, not all stereotypes are inaccurate. Sometimes they're, they, they're pretty spot on. But also uh, that people are quite good at distinguishing between the characteristics of a group, the average, so to speak, and the individual. Now, these being said, 
why do we have, for example, ethnic stereotypes that motivate, um, that seem to motivate us to be hostile towards other groups? Um, I think most of the research tends to uh, suggest that it's not so much that we have those ideas about other groups and then we uh, this creates this hostility. So that kind of idea that the stereotype creates an attitude which then creates something like discrimination um, seems to be inaccurate. What seems to be happening in lots of cases is that um, conflict between groups creates a context in which any representation that justifies the fact that we're in conflict with that group uh, will be picked up and will seem intuitively uh, relevant. So, for example, the uh, notion that members of the other group are exceedingly hostile uh, or that they're extremely violent and dangerous is something that you adopt and something that seems intuitively obvious once you're in a situation in which you're in violent conflict with that group. Um, in other words, you're already motivated to attack them and then ideas of this kind that seem to, 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 to explain your own uh, motivation seem very, very uh, intuitively convincing, compelling. And you see this a lot in politics, especially, but there's this tendency to group people into specific demographics, whether that's to cater to them or to understand, say, their voting patterns or things like that. Um, is doing this, is grouping people into demographics and, and sort of catering or, or using that to to understand, is that better uh, or worse for us as a society the more prevalent it becomes? Well, I don't think it's intrinsically bad in the sense that the, the, the point about being in a large society is that there's no way uh, you can really direct your communication, for example, at um, an indiscriminate mass of individuals. So um, you know, there are differences between groups and society and there are differences between demographic sort of um, uh, classes. Now, what is, of course, um, always um, morally um, uh, repugnant but also uh, counterproductive is when you decide to ignore any individual differences because of those stereotypes. But again, I'm not sure, apart from, uh, you know, demagogues, um, political approaches, um, and various, you know, nefarious people like that, I, I, I'm not sure that people do it that much. Um, there seems to be quite a lot of research these days in social psychology showing that when it comes to individuals, um, people tend to suspend stereotypes when they actually and interact with someone who is not exactly the way they expected, given the stereotype. So, for example, um, there are sort of good stories, sort of positive stories uh, from uh, unlikely uh, contexts. Like, for example, um, one that I like to see cite is the the fact that um, the best in terms of interracial relationships, uh, that is between black and white people um, in America, uh, the place where people report most satisfaction with that kind of uh, interaction is the US Army. Now, that may seem a bit surprising, but actually if you see it in a kind of um, evolutionary cognitive ways, it makes perfect sense. I mean, in the sense that once you are 
in a coalition, that is your little platoon, your you know, army unit. Um, <clears throat> and you know that the game is to be against other um, units, that is the enemy, the uh, people who might attack your country. Then you are in um, a kind of interaction that is very much pr uh, based on the idea that you have to collaborate, you have to cooperate, uh, you have to put your life on the line for the other people and so on and so forth. Um, and in that kind of context, the fact that it comes from one or another sort of ethnic group is of no interest whatsoever because it doesn't modify their, their position. So <clears throat> you can have lots of contexts in which people uh, suspend their stereotypes uh, simply because they're in a situation of cooperation and collaboration with individuals. Uh, so I think there's, there's hope. There's hope. Uh, we're not condemned to use the stereotypes, and we're not condemned to um, use them in a negative way uh, all the time. And looking at it from the perspective of uh, a group looking outward um, at other groups, why do people seem to care so much about what other people are doing, um, even if it doesn't really necessarily affect their life in any way? Why, why do some things bother or, or, or rub people the wrong way um, that other groups might be doing? Well, there are some, you know, these, this is a point that's uh, rather mysterious. One example, which I, I think really illustrates that, which is that um, there were lots of controversies in various uh, countries about legalization of gay marriage. And the thing is that um, there's always a question that people ask in these contexts, which is why, um, why should the fact that some people marry in a particular way be of any interest or be um, a matter of concern for other people. So, for example, if you like your traditional marriage, uh, does the fact that two men or two women get married um, take anything away from that? And that's an interesting question. And if your answer is, well, it's just because some people are bigots and they're you know, prejudiced, that's not a good answer because they're just re-describing the phenomenon and just doesn't explain it. One possible explanation is that many of the social norms we have are um, norms that have um, costs and benefits, and but they only have benefits if everyone uh, abides by them. Uh, so there may be a sort of intuitive sense we, we have as humans that changing norms and institutions is always comes at a possible risk for you. So in a way, uh, maybe the fact that we change institutions is uh, seen as dangerous simply because we tend to think of those norms as rules of the game. And it's a bit like, you know, if you're in the middle of a chess uh, uh, game and someone says, well, we'll decide that the, the, the knight doesn't behave the usual way from now on. And you immediately suspect uh, that the, they may have an agenda. You know, there may be something that will not be good for you in this kind of change. So I think uh, the interest in other people, uh, other groups, in what they do, etc., um, suggests that we have this intuition that really what they do will impinge on our welfare uh, in some way or other. It will have some consequences. 
And you bring up a good uh, a good point um, in in your answer there about this idea that we tend to redescribe the problem if we don't like, for example, in politics, what somebody's saying. It's it's easier to just say that they're a racist or that they don't like this or they don't like that. Redescribing the problem, as you put it. Um, what yeah. what do we do? How do we? If I want to stop doing that as an individual, uh, what's causing me to do that in the first place? And how do you stop? Well, what's causing us to do that very often is that um, when we say that, you know, other people are bigoted or that, you know, the way they think is because they're ignorant and so on and so forth, we are not so much trying to explain what they did and what they said. Uh, We're trying to send signals to other people that we are part of a certain group, a certain coalition. So, for example, if I say that, uh, if I loudly, you know, proclaim that there's no way you could be against gay marriage unless you're totally bigoted and an ignorant, um, prejudiced person. What I'm doing is that I'm not so much trying to explain why there's a position. I'm trying to signal to other people that I am of a certain, in a certain camp. You know, I'm uh, on a certain side. Uh, please take me as a member of this coalition, of this group. So that that would explain a lot of these sort of um, ideas. You know, why do we uh, constantly use um, ad hominems, for example, ad hominem arguments, saying you know what this person just said is uh, is can't possibly be taken seriously because, and then we cite their moral flaws or things mm-hmm. like that. Um, that is not because we're trying to explain; it's because we're trying to signal to each other or to you know to prospective sort of uh, coalition uh, members that we are on this side. So how do we stop doing that? Well, <laughs> it's very <laughs> difficult, but um, one thing that I've found is, um, you know, there are sort of rules of uh, uh, for this kind of exchange. And of course, if you are um, one, one advantage of doing social science is that you, those answers are, of course, not acceptable in the sense that they're not explanatory. So um, even if you, if you think, well, the only way people could be against this is because they're bigoted, uh, you can't publish an article saying, well, I have the explanation, those people are bigoted, because <laughs> then people will say, well, you know, the problem is that you have to explain why they're bigoted and what that bigotry comes from, and then we're back at, well, at, at the first step. So do I think... Um, in popular discourse, of course, it's very difficult to say, come on, this is not a great explanation. Um, but we have to do it. We have to tell people, you know, there, there's no, uh, you never get to understand people if you start by saying, by thinking that only stupidity or manis could explain what they just did. Um, and that's not to say that stupidity and manis do not exist. I'm sure they do. Uh, I know they do. <laughs> um, uh, but the thing is that the, um, they're very often the, 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 the easiest, but also the worst explanations for how things occur. So, you know, um, I think we can, but it's difficult. Yeah, it takes uh, constant effort. Um, I've seen that. Um, and, and of course, the, the, the obvious example the, the sort of, uh, of that is the... Um, Massive sort of uh, reaction again uh, uh, among academics to in America to the latest um, uh, presidential election. 
in which I see, and I'm always surprised to see that people who are uh, very sophisticated sort of scientists in in lots of ways, you know, if you you know if you ask them, you know, why uh, are there so many weeds everywhere you plant flowers, they would try to find a good explanation. But when you ask them why is was the you know why did the election turn the way it did last uh, last uh, last year, they immediately have a sort of uh, uh, totally crazy explanation like, well, it's because of bigotry, it's because of stupidity, and so on and so forth. And they think that's a perfectly fine explanation. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because they're so motivated that uh, the fact that it's a terrible explanation, just like, you know, you couldn't say, well, there are weeds in my garden because weeds are negative and uh, bad stuff always happens. (laughs) And people would say, that's not good botany. (laughs) You know, that may be philosophically profound, but it's not a great idea, a great explanation for for weeds. In social uh, phenomena, we tend to have this. And as I said, it's mostly because we're trying to signal to each other, I'm in this camp, you know, do not take me as a bigot. Mm -hmm. And the proof is that I denounce bigotry, uh, which is very important for us. So, yeah, we have to to try and, and suspend that, but it's very difficult. So with all that in mind, is is our hope that our group wins or do we actually try to find, you know, maybe common ground or, or come together on certain things? I think it's not so much common ground, but it's cooperation in the sense of the, the difference being that common ground is well what we all share, what we all have in common. Um, but cooperation is what I can gain from interacting from very distant people and what they can gain uh, from me in a sort of mutualistic way. Um, And we know that uh, humans are actually very good at that. Uh, But they're very good at that if the incentives are there and if the conditions are right. So as I said, you know, uh, you you can create, for example, um, very uh, highly cooperative uh, ways of uh, doing all sorts of things. Uh, humans have been hunting in uh, cooperative ways uh, long before there were modern humans. You know, it, it may be more than a million years that uh, humans managed to pursue their, you know, their prey in a cooperative way where each person has to do one particular thing, one particular role to play. And it's only if everyone does the, what they're supposed to do that you can get the mutually beneficial result. So we're very good at that. Um, so it's not so much sort of saying um, we shouldn't hate the guys from the other village because after all, we're all humans. That's not, that's not going to work very well. What I think is a much better strategy is to say, well, let's see what they have that uh, we could that they could give us and let's see what we have that we could give them or we could exchange or let's see what we could do together to produce interesting results for both of us. Uh, That may be more productive. And are politicians in the way of this? You talk in the book about uh, this idea that, that humans, we allow ourselves to sort of be dominated, whether it's by kings or tyrants or, or elected officials. Um, they have their own agendas. We have this idea of maybe we could cooperate on certain things. Are these politicians in the way, first of all, and why do we let ourselves as as a society be dominated by a few powerful people? Well, um, 
they are very often in a way in the sense that um, one thing that we, one theory of politics we have very often um, that is a sort of spontaneous uh, folk theory of politics is is that um, we have state and government and, and, and various bureaucracies um, and the way they act is that they they do what people through politics tell them to do. So basically, you know, you have an agency and this agency is supposed to, I don't know, uh, um, get taxes from people. So the government gives, tells them what to do and they do it. And that's more or less what, and in, in a democratic system, it's more or less what people try to get out of the politicians. Now, the problem about that, and lots of economists have written about that, the problem about that is that all of these agents, the, bureaucrat, the bureaucrats, the uh, politicians, all the administrative sort of offices and all that, they have their own agendas. They have their own interests. And these sometimes overlap with those that um, the people express, and sometimes less so. Uh, so there can be an obstacle in the sense that, for example, uh, the career of most politicians is not made worse by the fact that they made their countries worse. Um, that's, that's, uh, the correlation doesn't really work like that very often. So how do we get out of that? Well, and also the, the general sort of um, problem, you know, that's, that, that's an interesting problem for an evolutionary anthropologist. You know, why do we have... Um, great asymmetries in of power um, in human societies, and um, one uh, one clear explanation is that um, in many cases, uh, what individuals, what some individuals, or what some groups manage to do, is to create very efficient coordination between themselves and um, reduce the level of coordination in the rest of the population. So a good example of that is the communist societies, the socialist regimes in, um, in Eastern Europe and, and in Russia, where it was clear that everyone hated the regime, but the regime was extremely stable. Now, the, 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 that seems to be a paradox that the regime could be stable when uh, no one really wants it, apart from the, uh, the ones in power, the small clique of people in power. Uh, but the problem is that the, 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 the people who are in power have very high coordination, which means that they all know what each other thinks and what they're trying to do. Uh, the people, the general populace, so to speak, they don't have coordination because each of them knows that they hate the regime. They sort of guess that the others hate the regime. But then they have two problems. Uh, one is that they cannot be sure that the others uh, would like to get rid of this regime as much as they want, um, because there's no possibility of information about that. Of course, there's a huge repression and so on. And another problem is the problem of collective action, that it would be great to get rid of those, you know, dictators of those that nomenclatura in a communist regime. However, you have to have everyone on board to do it. Okay, so it's like a revolution. You all have to get out on the street and do it. Uh, now, the problem about that is that if you're in a situation like that, it would be great if everyone got out in the street and we overthrew the despot or the communist uh, autocracy. That would be great. 
But what is even more beneficial for each individual is that all the others do that and I stay home <laughs> and I benefit from the fact that we now have a much nicer uh, government. That would be good. So if I can, you know, compute my, my you know, strategy this way, it's clear that all the others will do that too. And that, of course, no one will show up in the streets to overthrow the despot. So we have a big problem, which is that you don't want to be the first one. Uh, and once the movement is going, then it's, it's okay to join. It makes me think back to, uh, to, to elementary school where the teacher would prompt you and say, you know, you're not the only one that has that question. If you, if you have a question, ask it because probably everybody in the room has the same question and nobody asks <laughs> the question. Um, no, of course. So uh, do you think social media, for example, is helping or hurting um, – you know, with this ability to coordinate, but also with this sort of idea, of course, of fake news, uh, misinformation. Well, it's uh, one interesting thing about, um, about social media is, of course, lots of people had lots of hope uh, for them because it's true that they can uh, create much better coordination in the sense that people can send information to each other about what they're doing, what they're going to do, and so on and so forth. They might make uh, political oppression more difficult, and that's why many uh, repressive regimes are trying to, 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 to control the use of social media. At the same time, um, now we see the other side of this, which is that, um, you know, we talk about uh, fake news and, and uh, sort of very bad information, but that's been with us a lot. Um, for a very long, long period in in human history, and as as far as we can uh, document, you know, there are people uh, spreading sort of weird conspiracies and having sort of um, all sorts of what I call low quality information about about various uh, uh, the explanations for various events. Now, um, the the interesting thing about that, I mean, there are t- several uh, interesting. T- twists in the story that are brought about by by social media. Um, One of them is that um, it makes weird ideas less weird. And the the reason for that is that um, suppose you live in a small community, in a small village, and you have this sort of uh, idea that the the moon is actually made of green cheese. It's very likely that most people will say, no, that's absurd, or you're an idiot, and that's it. these days, if you have such an idea, you, you get on the internet, there are at least a thousand or 10,000 people who have exactly the same sort of <laughs> weird idea. And the reason is that once you have several billion people you know, connected, it's almost impossible that you will not find another crackpot with exactly the same idea. Now, the thing is that um, the similarity of ideas is a very, very powerful cue that human minds uh, use for the validity of ideas. Um, basically, you know, if you if you realize that others, and it seems independently, have arrived to the same conclusion, you think that well, that conclusion can't be totally off, um, uh, and, and there must be something to it. So we have this powerful effect that we most of the weird ideas we have are uh, given this sort of um, aura of validity by the fact that lots of people have them. 
So that's been exaggerated by the social media and the net. Um, another phenomenon is that, um, and we see a lot of that now in those sort of uh, Twitter moral panics, you know, people sort of condemning someone because of something. And then you have uh, an avalanche of, you know, millions of tweets uh, against that person. Um, in a small scale community like where we, uh, the, the kind of context in which we evolved, uh, you do have moral concerns about others. You know, you, you like to, to disapprove and possibly punish people who do bad things. At the same time, there's a cost there. You can't just go around and say so-and-so is an awful person who grounds puppies for, you know, for fun every morning. Uh, because, you know, there may be allies of that person who will say, how dare you say such a thing or, you know, will challenge you or will uh, try to spread, you know, counter rumors against you. So there's a possible cost. Um, on social media, there's zero cost because it's totally anonymous. So you can say that, you know, uh, Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump like to drown puppies every morning. And that will be perfectly fine. And no one will ever uh, confront you and uh, tell you now you have to, you know, face the consequences of having slandered them. So because of that, you have this extraordinary, the two phenomena, you know, uh, together, uh, mean that you can have huge waves of moral panic about something like, you know, uh, some politician being horrible or so, uh, that kind of thing. And then, uh, and, and, and it becomes very extreme that, you know, whatever these people did, they have to be, you know, silenced, thrown out, uh, taken out of polite society. That's the idea. Um, and that is a new thing. And that is certainly, certainly not um, the way we can, I mean, that's certainly not positive, um, in the sense of trying to understand, you know, other groups, other, uh, ways of doing things, other ideas and things like that. If anything, it should sort of create lots of, um, uh, in-group bias, lots of, you know, confirmation bias, you know, I am right. And the way, uh, because my group is right. And on top of that, um, all the people I know, say exactly the same thing that I that I say. So therefore, it has to be sort of truer than, than other views on reality and so on and so forth. So, yeah, uh, those, I, we still don't know how things will, you know, turn out in 10, 20, uh, 40 years. Uh, but at the moment, we have this sort of uh, side effect of, of those, um, of those means of communication. And that's, that's quite interesting for people like me to study. But it's also a bit worrying. Okay, well, the book is Minds Make Societies, How Cognition Explains the World Humans Create. Pascal, thank you for coming on. Thank you very much. That does it for this week's episode. You can find more at yalebooks.yale.edu or on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or your favorite app. And while you're there, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating.